No one told me. It's always going to be just out of reach. Wow, do these people know something I don't know? Like the, the more hours I spend talking in public, the more chances I'll say something wrong and get in trouble. The good girl archetype was going to be the ruination of the world. It was this wake up, cosmic wake up. Just walking around exclamation points jumping off me at all times. I, just, I love messy humans. <laughs> you wanted this life. <laughs> this is your fault. You chose to do this. This is the art of asking everything. I am Amanda Palmer, and this week's guest is writer, musician, and activist, Laura Jane Grace, starring in Punk Guilt. Do you feel it? I feel it. I am it. Let's uh, start with some music. Can you drink the water too? There's always someone down to leave. That's a new song called Shelter in Place from her new album, Stay Alive, recently out on Polyvinyl Records. Laura Jane Grace is the founder, lead singer, songwriter, and guitarist of the punk rock band Against Me. The band put out their first album, Reinventing Axl Rose, in 2002, and then signed with a major label, quite controversially, in 2007. I remember that happening because I was there and people felt very weird about it. And then Laura came out very publicly as trans in Rolling Stone in 2012. I remember that too. I remember that issue coming out. I remember buying it in an airport on tour and reading it. And when I read Laura's memoir, which is called Tranny, Confessions of Punk Rock's Most Infamous Anarchist Sellout, I related so profoundly to the things she was struggling with, fame and touring and writing and celebrity and image and punk and authenticity. And her band against me and my band, the Dresden Dolls, were kind of born and toured and signed with a major at almost exactly the same time. Laura and I sort of went through identical identity crises. I don't have gender dysphoria, but we both had a kind of a punk authenticity crisis psychosis, never really knowing how real we were in the eyes of other people. And on bad days, like what real even fucking meant. But I think our superpower is that Laura and I both transmuted all of this confusion into our songwriting. And we still do this. And we both understand now that our magic artistic ability is composting heaps of confusion and growing songs from the blackness. And this conversation between us took place at South by Southwest in March of 2019. Do you remember South by Southwest? I remember South by Southwest. This was like this thing where tens of thousands of people would converge in one place in Austin, Texas for a giant music and everything festival back in ye oldie before times and we sat in my manager Jordan's hotel room and we talked and we talked and we talked one big tragedy of this interview is that well I knew Laura and her band and her story and her songs I hadn't yet read her memoir 
And that's actually why I am more excited than ever to do this particular live follow-up chat with Laura after the podcast drops. And I mean, this was still a great talk and we, we talk about punk and, and guilt and songwriting cycles and so many other things, but I have so much more to ask her, not just now that COVID has happened, but now that I have really, really dug into her book. And we'll also be talking about her book um, in the Patreon podcast book club in about a month. So if this inspires you, pick up her book, get reading and get ready to talk about all of these ideas with like-minded people. Without further ado, my friends, the beautiful Laura Jane Grave. For anyone who has no idea who you are, what your background is, I know it's really irritating, but can you summarize? Sure, yeah. Well, I'm 38 years old. I've played in my band called Against Me since I was 17 years old. I grew up in a military family, so I've kind of moved all over the place. But moved to Florida when I was like 12 years old and lived there till I was like 18. And then since then, lived in LA, lived back in Florida again, lived in Chicago for like past seven years. And I'm transgender, I'm an activist, I wrote a memoir, I have a nine-year-old. <laughs> I thought it was interesting you didn't mention as much music. <laughs> Do you feel like other things in your life, like the activism or the parenting or whatever, do you feel like any of that has created a need to compartmentalize music? Is music not as big as it used to be in your brain's landscape? No, music is so all-encompassing in my landscape. My daily schedule is wake up in the morning, take my daughter to school, and I have a studio space right by her school. I drop her off and I go into my studio space and I sit there until three o'clock when it's time to pick her up. And all day long, I just sit there and work on music. And then we go home and do it all again the next day. And the only time I'm not doing that is when I'm on tour. So maybe not mentioning music as much is just because it is so all-encompassing. It's, it's the water we drown in. Yeah, <laughs> maybe it feels like it doesn't need to be mentioned as much. Are you on tour right now? Yeah, this is the start of the tour. So it's like... Uh, last till the end of april but i haven't been on tour since october so it's been a nice break but yeah this is the start of the tour here at south by southwest which feels kind of almost like not that i play sports or like sports but like swinging a weighted bat before oh, you go out and, and absolutely like yeah actually yeah, yeah. do the thing you know this is a i've been using that metaphor for the last couple of days because especially when people see you in this kind of motion and they're standing still and they're asking like what's that like what's it like i'm like the best thing i can come up with is it's like it is like being an athlete mm -hmm. it's a physical job to get up in the morning and do this set of activities and use your body this emotionally and then collapse and get up and, and do it again. Sure. It's and still I, a physical job. I find I train like an athlete too. Like I go running every day. I like really watch my diet, make sure hydration, vitamins, all that stuff like leading up to a tour, but it never feels like enough. It's I always say enough. like maybe if you practiced in a sauna, it would like be comparative <laughs> to what you'd need, but otherwise it's just like you can't recreate Maybe it's the mix of adrenaline, too, and stuff like that, but you can't get that on your own, you know? Yeah, well, and neither can athletes. But it's so interesting that they have, like, there's so much more structure to get ready for a thing. And in music, you're just totally on your fucking own to figure this stuff out. Right, well, that's what it is, too, is that you're on your own. It's not as much of a team effort. And <laughs> if you had teammates, maybe it'd be more motivating. But I don't even live in the same city as any of my bandmates, so yeah. it's not like I can have a weekly practice or anything like that. It's all just, like 
you have to be self-motivated. Well, we could both go back to like early days of like touring in cars and vans. Like you did have teammates, right? You right. had like you had, but everyone was fucking clueless. Uh, yeah. And drinking, and right. like, and probably not doing a single healthy thing all day, which was. You're young though. You can do that a lot more easily, you know. Oh, uh, I mean, I couldn't, and I did, and I couldn't. It never feels like enough, and it also just like one of the things that's been occurring to me a lot in the conversations that I've been having since I got here it's to South by Southwest, especially with other musicians, especially with other female musicians, is not just what no one teaches you, but what you have no idea is getting in your way until you've kind of accidentally run through all these gauntlets of the recording studio of how it is to tour, how it is to be around all these people, especially if you're an emotional songwriter, performer, sure. and what you do is really emotionally legit no one tells you how to do that you get up one day thinking like hooray i'm in a band or i finally have a gig or whatever and you just sometimes you fail spectacularly but you're just making fucking everything up and you're doing it in a really often really hostile environment right and also the time allotment is totally flipped where at first, I don't know about you, but first record I ever made was recorded and mixed in a day. Yeah. Whereas like, you know, more recent records, maybe you spend a month or something. And you don't like need that. as much time now right, because right. you're way better at it. And so you walk into the studio and you're like so intimidated because I don't know what any of these things do. And I have a sound in my head, but I don't know how to get that out of this equipment. Yeah. And same thing with like shows or tours where like you go on tour and like you've got this one shot, get it right, as opposed to like later on in your career where you've got time and sound control. check is yours yeah you can you can choose the venue you know what you're doing more so it's really like luck in a lot of ways like that you know? so just because this is like my current obsession do you remember like those early studio sessions or those early gigs because also like y your music is not unemotional and you were up there transmitting a lot of confusion, pain, hardcore, like real emotion. Do you remember what it felt like to be at Soundcheck in the studio with these random people populating your environment while you stood there and tried to do that? Of course, yeah. Mm -hmm. I remember all those first experiences. I remember like vividly the first time in a studio going for a vocal take, you know, young punk, just screaming my head off and also like not doing it properly even in the sense of like not even holding a guitar so you're not singing in the same way and then like getting through the take and the engineer being like all right i think i've got the level set yes Let's do it i've for been real. there <laughs> like, i've been there and weeping and, and weeping like, and, I'm like, and i did it <laughs> yeah. and i did it and i got my take and i'm so proud of myself and i bet everyone in the studio is weeping with me and then you look in and they're all just like yeah yeah <laughs> Can you do that again? <laughs> and you're like, that was it. That yeah. <laughs> but that's also why I don't think it's silly that there is a difference between the idea of engineering and the idea of producing. And also just having had a baby, there is a great analog for this in childbirth. The midwife has this job to just get the baby out of the birth canal. That's the midwife's primary function. And the midwife's job is not to give a shit about you and your need. So would you say the midwife is more like the producer? No, the midwife is the engineer. Mm. Get the sounds, get the correct <laughs> sounds, make sure the mic is working, just make sure the sound is gonna get from A to B. And then the doula, 
The doula's job is to be like, and do you need water? And are you remembering to breathe? This is about you, your feelings, you're real. The mother also exists. And it's actually really good to have a team of two people or one person who actually knows how to do both of those jobs, which is what I got on my last record. John Congleton was an amazing midwife doula. He was like, sounds, sounds, mics, mics, feelings. And I was like, thank you. <laughs> thank you, sounds and feelings. Continuing with that metaphor, so, I would say that um, that the actual hospital staff, when my daughter was born, were more like the major label A&R people oh than God. coming and being like, all right, we're out of time. We're going to have to actually uh, yeah. circumvent this process and do it our way now. Do not get me started about Western medicine and birth and their evil alliance with the major label system. <laughs> it feels real, not unsurprisingly, driven by the same system. Mm -hmm. They're both profit-driven systems and not actually put in place to take care of what they're supposed to take care of. It's sure. just like human beings making soulful art. 100%. It makes everything not work. Mm -hmm. My daughter was born in L.A. too. So. <laughs> Did she come out with sunglasses and a jewel? Yeah. <laughs> totally iPhone in hand, yeah. These are the sorts of things that have sort of been rattling around in my brain that I actually have never really analytically looked at. What was happening when I was 27 and I was in the studio knowing very little? One of the things that I keep coming up against is like, oh, right, like I didn't... I mean, I didn't know what I was doing and I was blowing my voice out and I was like, there's my one take and I just didn't know how it worked. But I also didn't know that I could ask for things. I actually thought that like my job was to just go in there, do it right, and that everything was very cut and dry. All of my engineers were men. I didn't have a single female engineer. I don't think I've ever had a female engineer in any of my records. I can't say I've ever. Yeah. Uh, and we know the statistics. I mean, the music industry is 95% male. So there is this really weird thing of performing this emotional music for an audience, sometimes of one or two or three, sometimes the least emotionally invested in the music. They're invested technically, they're getting paid, they're doing their jobs, they kind of care. Right. Like you're at your most vulnerable with all the wrong people. There is a valuable tool though that I find in that and that it's something that I use to this day where like when I'm finishing something, I really do like to test it on an audience because I know immediately when I play something or share something with somebody, how I feel. Where if I feel uncomfortable, then I know like, oh, well, this lyric needs to be changed or this is what's wrong with this. Something's wrong with this and I need yeah. to address it. I think it's from that process of being like, you know, no one is giving me any feedback here and I'm like bleeding my heart out. So yeah. I like need to be really confident in what I'm doing, you know? I toured all of these songs on my new record before mm -hmm. I took them into the studio. And actually, you know, a couple of the songs I one of the songs in particular, which was just sort of like this long stream of consciousness rambling about motherhood, I never, ever would have thought was going to make it past just the point of this song is kind of a novelty joke. But then I started playing it for people. The one time that I thought I would play it live as its novelty joke, and I watched people really respond and respond emotionally. You know, I really had to admit that the material that I found possibly like kind of hokey and embarrassing, if it worked and it resonated, I was like, well, I guess my fucking opinion doesn't matter. <laughs> I've never really understood how as a songwriter you could make a bunch of songs, never play them for anyone, and then put them on a record and deliver it. 
that just seems terrifying to me. It can, it's oftentimes disastrous because songs need to age in that way. But I've found that there are like, there's sometimes too far of aging like a song where like it kind of spoils. Too late. Yeah. And that was like the record that I just did. That was the theme behind it. The idea of bought to rot. And this may sound cheesy or whatever, but it really came from buying fruits and vegetables. Because I'll go to the grocery store and I flip out if there's really good produce and good, good fruits and I'll buy it and then like- and I, It will so, rot. Yeah, and then you're like, oh, that that went to waste and it was good, it was perfectly usable. So sometimes you do need to really like take something and just get it out there and use it. So I do this all the time too and I actually just thought of a really great name for it, aspirational produce shopping. <laughs> <laughs> Because you're standing there in in the market and, and you're so aspirational. Yeah. You're like, all of the things I will make with all this kale, I'm going to be this person. And it's coming from the best place <laughs> of like, this will totally. be so good for me. This will be so good for us, you know, yeah. like, and. And yeah. then it rots. Mm -hmm. And you wasted your money and you wasted something that grew. And, and you destroyed the world, basically. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's you all know your it. fault. And, you're, <laughs> and, that, and, then, and then you're holding it about to compost. Accidentally stole a thing of chapstick from the Safeway. I didn't see it till we got out to the car. I would have usually returned it, but I was overwhelmed and late to take the baby to my cousins up in Carmel Bay. In my defense, I'd bought like $87 worth of groceries, and the chapstick was a dollar I know it wasn't the right thing to use my newborn child as an excuse, but it felt like a good reason at the time. And as I pulled out of the Do you go back and reuse old stuff? Do you ever find old bits and pieces and think, um, like, maybe you've fomented enough? If I've I hit a block you? creatively then sometimes I'll get in the mentality of like, I should go back and I should finish these loose end ideas. But it's rare that I will do that. And then one of those ideas will feel like, oh, that was totally like way awesome and way worth it. It's just like, I'm glad I did Reclaim. it. I'm glad I, I finished it, but it, you know, it's still a B-side. Yeah, I feel the same way. I actually, um, before I had a child, I used to have this really dark metaphor, which I still really believe in, which is, if you have a fetal song idea, and it doesn't matter how good it is, it has this half-life. It is sort of like giving birth to a baby. You can't just put it in the closet for six months and expect to come back and it's still alive. You have to actually tend to it. Sure. Mm -hmm. Part of the problem is that if, if certain inspiration hits you, like it's almost alchemical, it's the you of that moment that captures that song, that metaphor, whatever, that you can contain. And once you've moved around, all the light has changed. The, that moment will never be recapturable, even if the idea survived. Right, sure. And specifically lyrically, I find that. Like, I've, I have trouble reconnecting to the motion behind the lyric with that, you know? And there's something, too, to be said for, like, having ideas. And especially if I start to get, like, a couple songs together, where, like, I won't want to share them with people too early because it'll spoil it if right. I share it with too, too many people early. And I've gotten like more and more paranoid in this day and age, specifically with cell phones, where like the idea of, you know, 
you're talking about something and then the next minute you pick up your phone and there's an advertisement in Facebook yeah, related yeah. to that. I started thinking, what happens when they start listening in on your cell phone? Those. Yeah, and to your song ideas and to your melodies and then they start picking out your melodies and just using your melodies and all of a sudden- Micro cassette. Back to micro cassette and four track. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's the only solution. I have my like little like cassette player recording device or whatever that I still lean on and use. Yeah, um, I kind of want to go back to mine. Do you write faster than you used to? Do you have anything you could say about sort of the, like your growing relationship with art and speed and the speed at which you like to do things versus what or you know or what works, what doesn't work? Yes and no. After I came out, it was such a like breakdown of an emotional wall that I felt so like able to do and talk about anything and to write like freely. But I'll go through phases where like I'll complete a body of work and then I'll feel kind of dry. And it's almost like I need to like reset. Right now, I feel very much in this period of like I need to reset and rebuild and also just like figure out where the plot is now. Maybe that accurately describes it. I don't know. But I'm at that phase now where I'm like, fuck, I'm never going to write again. I'm shit. Totally I know that broke phase. Down. I was just talking about that with Ben Folds and how like once you've been through that phase, 15 times it doesn't hurt any less but it feels like a familiar pain yeah. and you're like oh you again i just am gonna have to wait before we started the podcast we were talking about ear exhaustion i read a study where your ears get literally physically exhausted when you make really loud music all night and you spend your life doing that so it didn't surprise me when I learned that, that when I started the Dresden Dolls, I stopped listening to music for pleasure. And I thought that that was maybe just emotional exhaustion, but it was actual physical exhaustion. My ears were just telling me like, stop, rest, silence. Like I need to rebuild my cilia. <laughs> and I think it's the same way when you expend an enormous amount of emotional and physical effort to make an offering in the form of an album and a tour, we could easily look to the natural world and be like, you have to rotate crops. Like you can't just keep pulling and harvesting. There has to be this fallow period in order for the whole fucking thing to continue to work. Right, which is the natural part of like musicians working in cycles yeah. that it's separate from like the business idea of it, of like, record a record, put out a record, go on tour. Like I need that touring period to move on as a person and to become someone new and to have new life experiences. And I think there's also something really to be said for like, I'm the type of person where if I write a song on a subject, I did it, that's how I feel about it. I don't yeah. need to tell you again or say it in a different way, which is why it's always so frustrating doing interviews when someone's like, can you summarize this for me? I know you like why spent you, why months. Why did you write this song? Yeah, yeah, but can you like yeah. take something you worked really hard on and tell it to me in a really, like shitty way you know yeah it's funny like i'm just starting the press right now for this record and this is that skill set where i figure out the clever things that i'm going to say in summary and it's going to take me <laughs> until my 15th interview to have economized that thing that i'm going to say and deliver it to you kind nice journalist who like has no idea how annoying it is to do this for the 19th time it like becomes a soundbite but at the same time it's true it's true then there's no other way it's to a cliche say it for a yeah reason. you're not gonna make up a new answer to it you right. know like once you yeah, get the so answer actually, that's the answer i have had to confront lately the myth that i think 
I've carried around and that I know a lot of other rock musicians and singer-songwriters carry around. That everything you say on stage has to appear as if you're just thinking it up in the moment. Right. And when you tour, you know, even though you know that the majority of the people seeing the show tonight didn't see it last night, didn't see it the night before, for your own sick pride, you have to phrase it differently. <laughs> and what's ironic is we don't feel like we have to play the songs differently every night. Those are allowed <laughs> to be delivered like the way they work. But when it comes to our in-between song banter, like we think we need to be very original and authentic and clever. And I thought about going to Hannah Gadsby's show and watching her just throw down a scripted offering night after night after night of what it is like to be her and what it is like to be raped. And then I went and saw Bruce Springsteen do two and a half hours of scripted storytelling on the, the Broadway, Broadway show. show. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I was like, why do we all think we're not allowed to do this? Why am I not allowed to actually really decide what it is that I want to say and actually almost do the audience a kindness by summarizing it and really thinking about it, planning it, saying it, instead of just rambling slightly differently every night for 16 minutes and musing about, tonight, my thoughts about abortion. I could save us 16 minutes, script something really precise and tell you in two mm -hmm. and not waste your time. But that's very scary because that feels like it flies in the face of being an authentic rock and roll stage performer. I think a lot of that comes from like the punk rock mentality of that's not very punk of doing that, of getting up on stage and saying that every night. But you know, like no, that was I something that, that that's like the punk guilt that I carried with me. And it was something though that I took into real consideration as we toured with bigger bands and saying like doing arena tours and realizing like this is a production. But it also gets into just it being different crafts. Like there's your right. craft as a recording artist, as a songwriter, and your your craft as a performer. And you, I do want consistency in performance every night because I think that people deserve that. And frankly, like there's some nights where like I don't feel good, you know, like I don't feel good physically. I'm going to do the song the same, but I don't want that to mean like, and now I'm going to be sullen and withdrawn in between yeah. the songs and I'm going to say nothing to you. Because I used to do that, like go on tour so and say nothing in between songs. Yes, you know? and be grumpy at everybody. Mm -hmm. There's a word for this in most other areas and like we are allowed to use it too it's called professionalism yeah <laughs> <laughs> you don't think about professionalism when you think about punk rock right but they actually ex can exist together mm -hmm. those were really interesting lessons to learn and it's also it's like that when you're a teenager and you love punk because you believe in complete and fucking utter authenticity i mean unless you're in the like total henry rollins school of thought you're not really taught that professionalism and authenticity can go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. You're sort of taught that professionalism is the antithesis of authenticity because it means you're showing up for work and you're disciplined and you're a grown up. And if you are in more of the like sloppy, make it up as we go along, fucking DIY, fuck everything, fuck rules, anarchic school of punk rock, that can be scary. Mm -hmm. And I definitely felt like that in the early days of the Dresden Dolls. And, and when I look back, it was a real paradox. And I'm sure that like you probably battled those things too, which is like I was living in a paradox. I had to be disciplined. We had to be disciplined if we wanted to do the job of playing these massive shows every night, getting from place to place and not sucking. Mm -hmm. I, and I can't speak for Brian, and Brian would probably ha actually have a lot to say about this and had a different point of view and probably still does. But I didn't want to seem disciplined. 
I want it to seem real and raw and fucked up and amazing and all of the things that I wanted to appear when I was 25. Right. But how long were your set lists then? Long. Really? And ever-changing. Because we would do like half hour, you know? Like that Fuck one. you! <laughs> no. We would play three-hour shows and then we would sign for oh, three no, hours. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> See, it's a lot easier to do that when you're doing like nine songs in a set list and then it's just an explosion <laughs> of energy yeah. and you're done, you know? But yeah. you realize oh, when no, you're like... We, we ran a marathon every night from the beginning of the Dresden Dolls. The only time we would ever play a 30-minute set is if we were forced to at a festival and we would be angry because we would be just getting our boner up at the 30-minute mark and then the... <laughs> The you know the plug would get pulled and it's like well there goes that my touring show right now is three hours I would prefer Respect. it to be four because I wish I could add a Q and A that's crazy how many songs is that I don't know I mean it's a lot of talking right like fifteen twelve fifteen something like that we kind of reached this point where like no matter how many songs we play it's an hour and a half. It could be 20, it could be 35. It's an hour and a half. Like, that's just what happens. I'm jealous. <laughs> I played a three-hour show last night here, and I was like, why, why am I doing this? I don't understand where you get your energy from. I, like, see it from a distance, and I'm impressed by it. I, like, I'm envious. I wish I, I had that kind of energy. Uh, you know? It's like zest. But <laughs> I get energy from doing a three-hour show. And I think it's because I, I get energy from being seen and heard. Mm -hmm. That's the simplest way I, I could put it. It doesn't exhaust me. It feeds me. Is that only in a musical context or is that in the other Are context as well? Are you fucking kidding me? Like, period. <laughs> I need to be seen and heard in line at the coffee shop. Look at me. <laughs> I wish you'd been at my show last night. It didn't feel exhausting in the way that people might think because it felt like there was an actual communion and conversation going on with the audience. You know, it's work and you're doing your professionalism and you're holding the space and you're dealing with all of the many things that you're dealing with and performing your songs. But to be able to look out at the audience and see them receiving that's like vital juice for my soul mm. and it's why I, I don't think i could ever handle just being a recording artist and never having the um gratification of doing this thing which feels so life-giving and so life-affirming and so relieving to me to be in like mutual recognition with other human beings i leave a show like that feeling tired but also much happier much more relieved, much less alone. And I have to say, having just done the gamut of South by Southwest for the last five days and just being on, on, on and talking one-to-one -one with a lot of people and doing this and doing that, those three hours last night were almost the most relaxing. <laughs> I can see that in the South by Southwest context, sure, yeah. Yeah, because I was like, finally, finally, the fucking point, this not talking about it, not selling it, not explaining it, doing it. Mm -hmm. This I like. <laughs> <laughs> the rest of it feels like the dark side of professionalism. Right. I have trouble with that in the South by Southwest context of like, with the not getting the connection with the audience because I'm not sure who the audience is or why they're there or if they're oh. actually receiving it or and anything like that. And that's frightening. Right. And the more personal your music is, the more frightening that is. I've been thinking about my record 
and also Nick Cave's record, his last record, Skeleton Tree, is kind of a, a template of what is possible when an artist fully goes there emotionally. I keep thinking about context. I don't think Nick Cave could have made that record without the understanding and the knowledge that he had a community out there ready to receive it. I don't think I could have made this record that I just made that deals with the most visceral, personal death, grief, cancer, abortion, miscarriage. The reason why I could make a record that vulnerable is because I knew who was out there. Do you mean that in a conscious or a subconscious way? I think when I'm successful in those situations, it's because it's subconscious. Anytime I start to think about what I'm doing, I find that it's usually not good results. I think with like talking about Nick Cave and stuff like that, for me, and I don't know Nick Cave or anything like that, but looking at that and looking at that process, it really speaks to the importance of practice, knowing that he's someone who goes to a room, sits there and writes, and to have something happen traumatic that you then go through to lean then on your practice and to like be able to go through your process, I think is definitely healing. And that's what I use art for, you know, personally. But I don't know if it's something that I can do like thought well, out consciously. You but know? I'm not saying it's conscious. I think it is totally subconscious, but that's why it works. Mm -hmm. I don't sit down writing a song going like, I know what I'm going to deliver to everyone, to all of my lovely fans. Like, I don't think about that at all. Right. Because then it becomes a job. And second guessing. I don't want to write shit for people, really. Right. I don't, you know, then I'll feel like I'm manufacturing something instead of making something. But now that we are being conscious, because we're just sitting here <laughs> talking about it, when you look back at like you 20, you 30, you now, do you see a difference in what you thought you were able to say then versus later? The negative reaction to me has always been as equally rewarding as the positive yeah. reaction. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, <Word. laughs> So, you know, for better or worse or whatever, but knowing you're doing something that's going to get a reaction or is going to connect in some way, I think that that just is there if you're connecting with yourself and you're creating something that speaks to yourself and works on the one-on-one, -on -one, just like you alone basis, you know? But it's being in touch with that feeling and knowing when you're on that path is something that's taken me a long time to come into. And maybe that's just like emotionally being able to be in touch with myself, you know? And talking about like going into a studio and not really know what's going on, being surrounded by people who aren't giving you any feedback, being in a band with people who aren't in touch with their emotions and don't want to talk about their emotions. And you're like, here, I wrote songs about my emotions and now I want to talk about my emotions. Like it's... I've been there. Yeah, it's yeah. tough, you know? When you look out at your audience now, which is like an audience that's either aged up with you or just found you. Do you think you feel differently looking at that audience? I mean, clearly you're different, but as the, does like the tone of that relationship changed from what you can remember from whatever, 10 years? Sure, yeah. I mean, it used to be more of like uh, unfocusing my eyes when I was on stage, so I didn't actually see anybody. Whereas like last night playing, I looked for the one person singing and like I just made eye contact you. with them and it was like, yeah, this is me and you, you're dancing, you're singing, we're going to have this moment even if no one else is, you know, and in the past that would not have been me. Mm, that's your professionalism. <laughs> but that's, that's rewarding, you know? Yeah, I think that's also one of the things that you learn the more you make music. At least I've gotten way better at understanding 
that it's definitely not going to work for everyone on everyone. But when you find the connective threads to that person, to that listener, you get a lot better at just focusing on that and ignoring the rest of the noise around you. I was talking about this a little yesterday where I didn't really think about this until recently of how much like I don't actually like the live music experience. I don't like going to shows. I have social anxieties. I don't like being surrounded by a bunch you of mean people. being in the audience. Yeah. I love playing shows, but I don't like going to shows as a spectator. And that was never what drew me to music initially. Like yeah. I like the individual experience of listening to music on my own and connecting in it in that way. And, you know, talking about like ear fatigue and stuff like that, like, how is it even possible to absorb music in the same way in a live context when it is coming at you in such a volume that you are missing all the like... Subtlety. Yeah, and the nuance of it. It's yeah. a totally different experience and it's separate. And like, I'm just very much more of the like personal experience of listening to a record. That's... You should join the nonprofit that I'm starting with Zoe Keating called Musicians for Less Music. <laughs> I'm in. <laughs> you have me. <laughs> we have all of these ideas. There's just going to be no music anywhere. Our big undertaking is to strip the whole world down to just 100 songs. No no other songs allowed. We're just going to pick 100 and that's all we're going to have. Do you have. need that many even? Yeah. Maybe 10. Maybe 10. Like a Beatles song. It's only so like, many chords, you know? <laughs> a Beatles song, a Beethoven a folk song like we we just don't need so much music there's so much why why bother <laughs> do you have anything else you want to say talk about share pontificate upon no it's really nice to meet you and it's really nice to talk with you i've listened to you like literally every day for like the past year and a half my daughter is absolutely obsessed with you oh. it's really it's cool she's really jealous that i'm here right now oh i hope that i get to hang out with both of you at the same time and i hope that she gets to meet ash who's now getting to a more social age where he can hang with others and be interesting. It's interesting though, like seeing your kid absorb music, especially when they reach an age that you can remember being and the way you felt listening to music. Like for me, seven, eight, nine years old was when I really started connecting with music emotionally. Yeah, and you're that artist for my daughter. You are the first artist that my daughter has connected to on an emotional <laughs> level. To be driving down the road and look in the rear view mirror and see her singing along to your songs is like really touching and special. Which songs to me. does she like? My friends, Problems with Winter and Autumn to Give Room Prescriptions, they shun it. Let's give them this um, ukulele song every day for like the past nine months. Wow. I swear to God. That's awesome. That yeah. That is about as rewarding as it gets for me. Drowning in the sound. She, I, I'm like, I'm going to South by Southwest right now. Yeah. And I don't think she really understands what South by Southwest is. But like, she loves that song. I think I figured out what those Brainiac lyrics were actually about on stage last night, explaining to South by Southwest this song. And I was like, I'm in that place that I'm singing about. I'm going to have to sort of explain it to these people in a way that makes sense. And then I explained it to the audience. See, that's like, such an immediate audience. song, though. That doesn't seem like a song that's veiled in metaphor in any way. You know, it's like such a direct message. And it's interesting because I have a song like that called I Hate Chicago, Living in <laughs> Chicago, that you play that for an audience in Chicago. And like, it's rare to have a song where you're like kind of frightened, where you're like, I yeah. may piss off everyone in the room here. Uh, 
that's or like you a might really... be expressing their deepest feelings. Right, right. Well, that's what I find with playing I Hate Chicago is yeah. that people in Chicago are like, yeah, I get it. You I know? have a seed of a song in me called I Hate Boston that is just such a, going to be so <laughs> brutal if I write it. And I'm like, I don't really want to write it. it I just, I'm going to get in trouble. People will hate me. But like, you know, if I wrote it right, it would be amazing. It would be a song that pe like that people in Boston would understand and have to love and have to contend with. But I'm also just like, oh yeah, that's just gonna be exhausting. <laughs> stay, stay there. <laughs> but you will eat me from the inside like a tumor. I have to get it out. I have to get it out. I have to surgically remove it like the malignant tumor that it is. <laughs> well, I hope we get to talk again and again and again. Actually, I mean, what I'm realizing just in the last 48 hours is that the reason I'm doing a podcast is because I want reasons to get together with people that I like and immediately cut through all superficial <laughs> chit chat and bullshit and just talk about the things I want to That's talk a good about. reason to do a podcast. You know? I think it's working. <laughs> it's working. Like no chit chat and superficial needed. We get to skip that three hours of our relationship and just go right to the interesting shit. Yeah. Thank you so much for doing this. My pleasure. Thank you. Let's go play a show. So if you see my sister Evelyn, tell that girl to hurry home again. Where oh where my sister Evelyn go? Is she with the doctor or the plumber or the dentist or the handyman? Did she go to India or Africa or Wichita or Pakistan? Did she go and join the Navy or go completely crazy? Or is she playing a trick on me? This has been the Art of Asking Everything podcast. Thanks, of course, to my guest, Laura Jane Grace, for doing this wonderful interview with me. It was recorded by Jessica Gardner, who was also filming a documentary on my entire South by Southwest experience. You can actually watch that documentary online. The theme song that you are listening to right now is Bottom Feeder from my 2012 crowdfunded album, Theater is Evil. For all the music that you heard in this episode, you can go to the new and improved amandapalmer.net slash podcast. Many, many thanks to my podcast assistant, social media helper, and additional engineer, Xanthia O'Connor. This podcast was produced by Fanny Co. Many, many thanks to my team at AFP Worldwide. Haley, Michael, Jordan, and Alex, I love you guys. Special thanks to Nick Rizzuto, Brittany Bomberger, Ali Cohen, and Braxton Carter. This whole podcast would not be possible without patronage. I have about 15,000 people supporting me and my team so that we can do this podcast without ads, sponsors, or censorship so that we can just do what we want and say what we need. And on that note, I would like to give very special thanks to some of my highest level patrons, Bernhard Reebok, Simon Oliver, St. Alexander, Bertie Black, Ruth Ann Harnish, and Leela Osgrove. Please go to Patreon, become a supporting member, and that will also give you access to the live follow-up chats that we have been doing with almost every podcast guest. Signing off, I am Amanda fucking Palmer. Keep on asking everything. <laughs>